Hello, and welcome to Driverless, a podcast that analyzes legal issues surrounding autonomous vehicles. I'm your host, Zach Adams. On today's episode, John Fesco and Todd Northman join me to discuss why autonomous vehicles are safer than human-operated cars. But more specifically, how much safer autonomous vehicles will have to be before they gain widespread adoption from the public at large. We also touch on how the types of car accidents we see will change as autonomous vehicles become more commonplace. Finally, we dive into who will be the parties that are sued when these accidents happen. With that said, let's get to our third episode of Driverless. John and Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Zach. Happy to be here. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, the way autonomous vehicles not only help us and will improve the way that we live, but also some of the ways that we think or the hurdles we're going to have to overcome in order to see mass implementation of them. So that being said, what do you guys think are kind of, you know, there's so many advantages of these cars. What do you guys think are like the big ones, the ones that jump out, that these are the overarching reasons that we have to go you know, forward with autonomous vehicles? Well, I think the Department of Transportation really signaled with their AV 3.0 that we discussed on the last episode that safety is going to be the primary benefit here, and that's where they're laying it. It isn't quality of life. It is that this vehicle, once it's fully implemented, is going to be far safer. Yeah, I think there are obviously a host of advantages um, from just time savings. Uh, I know I myself have about a 40-minute commute to the office every day, and getting to use that each way uh, for something else is a huge advantage to me. Uh, Potential cost savings, uh, when you look at some of the Uber models, how much uh, the cost of an average Uber ride would be if you eliminate the human driver from that equation. Uh, City planning. Maybe no longer needing parking garages downtown, uh, the ability to open up that real estate for other uses. But in the end, I think that Todd's right. The the biggie and why we'll see widespread adoption of this eventually is is the safety component um, and the elimination specifically of human error from accidents. And you know, I think we're talking about you know, safety being such a big component, but. One of the things, the reason I think safety is such a big component is what it eliminates. And what it's eliminating is kind of that human driver. We see that in a host of ways, right? We see that with distracted driving, drunk driving, angry driving, um, you know, a whole host of other issues. How do you guys see going forward uh, as we eliminate human error? How do we convince people that this elimination of human error uh, is beneficial, even if those cars are getting in accidents that humans wouldn't get into themselves, such as, you know, we've seen accidents with autonomous vehicles going into fire trucks or, you know, going into guardrails, things like that. And I think the overarching thought there is people say, well, autonomous vehicles can't be safe because I wouldn't get in that accident. I don't care if it saved me a couple times whenever I would have been texting and driving or changed the radio station or whenever I would have cut someone off in traffic, I would never go into the back of a fire truck. And how do we kind of shift public thinking so they see the benefits, even if maybe it's a different type of accident we're used to seeing? Yeah, so I think the two key questions that are there, number one, the, the one that you identified um, surrounding that question of would I have gotten in, in this accident, uh, but another initial question that we'll have to answer is how safe is safe enough to switch to these vehicles? Uh, if it's 1% safer, should we flip the switch and say that's all we need? Uh, that'd still be a tremendous amount of accidents that these would be getting in and in a different type of accidents that we're seeing because you've eliminated, as you said, Zach, those drunk driving accidents, the distracted driving accidents, those sorts of things. So how safe is safe enough before we see widespread adoption? 
Right. And I think if we look back at the statistics for fatalities here in the United States annually, you see about 40,000 fatalities from auto accidents annually. And that number has been fairly stable since 2015. So that's what NHTSA and the Department of Transportation are saying is the low-hanging fruit to eliminate 94% of those, which is what they identify as distracted driving. But I think, John, your point's exactly right. This is a fascinating question as to socially what we're going to do where you've got the Lake Wobegon effect and everyone thinks they're a much better driver than they are and no one acknowledges in their own mind that they're just as likely to get into a distracted driving accident as anyone else. So the, the reality is if people were paying attention, if they weren't on their phones, if they weren't speeding, if they hadn't had too much to drink, all these different factors that the Department of Transportation lists as human error, we wouldn't need autonomous vehicles because we are in a situation where even if you reduce accidents, uh, accident fatalities by 200%, you've got 20,000 accidents. That would be almost 17,000 accidents that would cause fatalities that an autonomous vehicle would have that an attentive driver would not. And that's going to be very difficult to handle socially. And so you guys are talking about you know, the statistics behind this. Do you think stats enough are going to be what shifts public perception, or do you think it'll take more? Because what we're dealing with here is a case where we're almost having to prove the negative, right? You're having to prove to people that these vehicles are saving lives, that they're saving accidents that otherwise would happen. And that's a really tough burden. So do you guys think that just inundating public with more stats about how much safer these are, that's the way to go? That's going to shift public perception? I think there's an easy answer to that if we look at the statistics and what limited impact they have. We know that we're having 94% of our fatalities now result from distracted driving. That has not changed driver behavior. Yeah, and I don't think that statistics will be enough to answer your question, Zach. Um, I, I, they should help, and, and that's going to be part of the public education that's needed is to get people in the right frame of mind to hear those numbers, understand those numbers, and accept those numbers. But at the end of the day, when you start to put faces and stories to the numbers themselves for Todd, to your point, those 17,000 fatalities that we would still see, even with a tremendous reduction in the number of fatalities out there, and that, by the way, is just talking about fatalities. If we expand that to accidents in general, not just fatal accidents, obviously those numbers go way up. Um, but that's where you will start to have real trouble uh, with the public acceptance of, of these stats driving the safety discussion. Sure, and I think that's going to be a hurdle that you know these manufacturers are going to have to overcome, is that for even though it's safer, the accidents could be, uh, they're going to get more press coverage, they're going to be a little more publicized, and they're going to have to overcome the stories that come with those of, you know, the innocent person that was having their self-driving vehicle take them right into a guardrail or something like that. Um, right. No, that's an excellent callback to what we've already seen, and Elon Musk famously complained about this. Someone can break their ankle in an auto accident that has nothing to do the, you know, the autopilot isn't even engaged, but the fact that a Tesla's in an accident and that makes the news is fascinating, but it does lay out how difficult a burden this is going to be if we put it in front of auto manufacturers to build the public case for this. And to that point, I think one of the points Elon was making was uh, 
you know, it's amazing that person only had a broken ankle, right? And that's not the public, it's not the press they got. The press is, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. They had a broken ankle. When really maybe it should be the other way of they only had a broken ankle, right? So I think what you'll see too is as these vehicles get hit by human drivers, hopefully that will change some of the public perception as well and try and shift that focus to if you really want to get these numbers down and if you really want the roads to be safer for your loved ones, here's the real driving force of, of human error be, behind these higher statistics. And so far, to both of your points, what we've seen are huge stories whenever an AV gets in an accident. And as they become more popular on the roads or more prevalent on the roads, you'll start to see more and more that drunk driver that hit that AV. And then the, the shift of that story can be on who the real problem is in that type of accident, as opposed to just what we've seen in a couple of instances so far, where it's an AV hitting a pedestrian and there's not a lot of, of drunk, distracted driving um, discussions to be had around that type of an accident. And that's a great point, John. I think you're 100% right that as these cars become more prevalent and manufacturers gather more data, what happens whenever they start rolling up data that says, actually, the problem with our cars is the human drivers. The problem with our cars is we have human drivers out there that are hitting our cars or, you know, violating um, all kinds of right-of-ways, things like that. And that's really the issue. Now, you're going to have some people who are going to sit there and say, well, we were fine driving before autonomous vehicles. And just because the autonomous vehicles think we're the problem, who are they to say that? But you have other people that look at that data and are really captivated by it and really persuaded that this makes a lot of sense. So it'll be interesting to see how the autonomous vehicle, you know, lobby, we'll call it, uh, how they work with that data and how they push it out in a way that's not offensive, but more persuasive. If people are even willing to look at the data. And I think really if we look at what Mothers Against Drunk Driving have been doing now for decades and decades, and they've had a tremendous impact, but we need to recognize it's been decades and decades and decades on which they've built this case. And it has had a tremendous impact, but this is not going to be simple. And I think another key part of that is making sure that the statistics that they put out there are uh, defensible and accurate. Um, Tesla, for instance, loves to throw out statistics about the introduction of autopilot and how much safer that, than, that uh, the roads have been, or at least the drivers of those Teslas have been since it's rolled out. Uh, but that number has not been without its criticisms and kind of peeling back the layers of it and, and what does it really mean behind that. And really making those statistics um, defensible and accurate will go a long way towards the public education and changing public perception on these points. Because otherwise, if you can just say, well, that one's not really accurate because of this issue with it, it becomes very easy for a person who doesn't want to face the reality of that statistic to quickly disregard it if they have an excuse like that to do so. Yeah, and I guess I'm to go back to Zach's initial observation, I'm skeptical that we're going to win this debate with statistics. It's going to be stories, and it's going to be people understanding as they ride in their Tesla, hey, I am a much safer driver with autopilot enabled. And I just, I am very skeptical that the statistics are going to win, in part because they're going to be so hard to collect. I think another key part, too, is getting people to stop thinking in terms of them being better than the car driving themselves because that's people are very quick to say I'm, I'm a good driver I'm the best driver out there 100% of drivers are good drivers right <laughs> but also you'd probably get people to say 100% of other drivers are terrible drivers 100%. 100%. and and that's the point 
is even if you think you're a better driver than this autonomous vehicle is, if you can get somebody to accept the benefits of having that other driver in an autonomous vehicle, then there might be better uh, public perception of these vehicles going forward. I think that's 100% right. I think you have people uh, that, yeah, they, they may have trouble kind of you know, setting their ego aside and say, maybe this car can drive better than I can. But I think most people would say, I'd love to be on the road with a bunch of cars that turn their turn signal at the right time, that break the appropriate amount of distance before a stop sign, that always uh, give the right away to whichever car is passing. I think everyone would love that world. Uh, and I think framing it that way is really persuasive. I think the other thing is, you know, Todd, you were mentioning this, uh, the stories being more powerful than the statistics. I think what will be really interesting is whenever an autonomous vehicle manufacturer can come out and say, because our autonomous vehicle was in this accident, lives were saved. This human driver caused an accident that we couldn't have prevented, but because our autonomous vehicle reacted the way it did, lives were saved. Whereas a normal driver wouldn't have had time to react because the reaction time would have been slowed, their vision would have been impaired, whatever. Uh, maybe, you know, and I'm just hypothesizing here, a T-bone accident, something like that. Uh, because our autonomous vehicles were able to cut through the snow, because our autonomous vehicles can react in milliseconds instead of seconds, we were actually able to save lives. I think those are the kind of stories that are really going to shift public perception and really change the narrative around these vehicles. Right. No, it's a very evocative image. And I wonder who's going to produce that, because I think that's right. If we could just get media around this, if you could demonstrate, actually demonstrate what you suspect to be true, that would be very powerful. But I'm not sure how one goes about doing that. Sure. And lingering just on stats for one second, I want to follow up on something that I think, taught, no, John, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, you know, we mentioned about when there's going to be this tipping point when these cars are going to be safe enough that we see mass adoption and what that tipping looks like, point looks like. Is it 1% safer than all human drivers or does it have to be you know, 100% safer? What do you guys think is the tipping point? Where do you think is the point where people will start to say, okay, this is so much safer than what I'm accustomed to that I'm okay with these cars kind of taking over and being the uh, you know, more ubiquitous mode of transportation for people? For me personally, I put that number at 1% safer. Uh, I, I realize that the types of accidents that you would see with that remaining large amount of accidents would be different than you'd see with human drivers, but if it's safer, at least in my opinion, then it's safer. That being said, I don't expect the general public to accept 1% safer, and I think that you're going to have to be maybe not orders of magnitude safer, but significantly safer uh, than human drivers before you're going to get widespread acceptance of the use of the vehicles. Yeah. No, I think what would really sell this is if we saw fatalities drop. If fatalities dropped 100%, which is to say to 20,000 annually in the United States, that if we could trace that and persuade people that that was attributable to AV deployment, that would work. But I think it's going to be a lot more subtle than that. And the good news is we don't really need to win this argument because they're going to become commercially available well before there is that level of proof. The Rand Corporation actually produced a study a couple years ago that talked about how many hundreds of millions of miles of proof we would need to demonstrate conclusively that AVs are safer. So that can't be the step we need to satisfy in order to get deployment here. And, you know, there's a point that I think we've all been touching on as far as, you know, we can reduce the amount of accidents, but that the types of accidents that will occur will be different. And a lot of that's attributable to the fact that instead of having human error, we're going to have 
neural network error or device manufacturer error, things like that. Um, let's talk a little bit about what those type of accidents will look like. What do you guys see as being the shift from the current types of accidents we have with fender benders, you know, things like that, someone texting or changing the radio, to the types of accidents we're going to see as autonomous vehicles become more commonplace? Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, and I don't mean to punt on the question, but I think what we're going to see is a lot of what we just saw with the Waymo motorcycle accident. You're going to have a lot of accidents that are going to be attributed to that transition from the AV controlling the operation to the driver, be it the backup driver and the Tesla, the person in the driver's seat. And there's going to be a lot of finger pointing there. And that really is because those are the edge cases in which you have your attention called to the need to drive. That's where it's going to be. And that's why I say this storytelling is going to be very messy. And the irony is if we had, if we as the general public had the amount of exposure to the average accidents that's occurring today on the roads in, in the same degree of exposure that we do to these one-off AV accidents that are occurring. I bet that we look at the average accidents that's caused by a human driver and we'd also say, I wouldn't have done that. There's probably people plowing into the back of fire trucks all the time. Uh, we just don't hear about it because somebody screwed up and, and it didn't involve an AV. So there's no reason for it to be newsworthy. Um, so I'm, I'm just thinking of this now, but it, it may not necessarily be that it's fair to even ask the question, would I have gotten in that accident as the, the measuring stick that we should use for AV accidents? Because that's probably, we could ask that same question of accidents that people are getting into and still say, well, I wouldn't have gotten in that accident. Well, and to that point too, you know, if we're going to apply it, the standard that way, what about the standard the other way, right? Where we say... Well, that person got into an accident that an autonomous vehicle wouldn't have gotten into. You know, I don't hear anyone saying that. And I think that's something that we're wholly uncomfortable with, right? We're wholly uncomfortable with saying, you know, this person should be charged, um, you know, with a higher degree of liability or culpability because they got into an accident that an autonomous vehicle wouldn't have done. Uh, so it seems unfair to then turn the other way and say, well, I wouldn't have gotten into the accident that the autonomous vehicle did, right? It seems like you're kind of playing both sides. Right. Although I think that's what NHTSA is trying to do with its 94% statistic on human error. And, but that is where I love the way John framed this, because it's exactly right. As I return to that statistic, it's mind-blowing, because you realize, and this is really what I was trying to do when I introduced the statistic initially, you realize how controlled most accidents are, that it is attributable to human error, which are within, as a driver, your control to avoid. And that's very powerful, but it also helps us understand that there are a number of accidents that are caused through human error, by far the majority of them. Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, it, the, the need to, to blame somebody will probably win out, and you'll see by necessity, will, it remains to be seen how successful they will be, but by necessity you'll see an influx of product liability suits because they're will just be no one else to point the finger at. So you'll see these manufacturers necessarily having to defend themselves against litigation and and to defend why their neural network made the decision that it did. And that even assumes that it was a neural network issue as opposed to a hardware issue, something with a LIDAR malfunctioning or whatever, camera, whatever the case may be. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, whenever we have a system right now where whenever somebody gets in an accident, that's the first thing that people are looking to. Whose fault was it? Whose insurance is going to compensate the person who was injured in it? And if you get rid of that system, 
people are going to want to fill that void in some way. And let's talk about that a little bit. So we mentioned how the types of accidents might be different. How might the lawsuits be different? Because right now, you know, if on the way into the office, me and Todd, uh, you know, we get into a fender bender whenever we're pulling into the garage. It's pretty simple. We both kind of, you know, if I think it's Todd's fault, I might sue Todd and maybe he's underwritten by insurance, you know, whatever. And we kind of go from there. With these types of accidents, I mean, if an autonomous vehicle is, let's say it causes an accident uh, or if it's even involved in an accident, you've got so many different players involved, especially as we've seen these companies are so incestual where different companies may own uh, the software, may own the hardware, may own the actual vehicle itself. And then that's not even talking about if the company or if the car is owned by a private individual or by a company and used for commercial use. And then we've still got insurance as a component of that. So who do you guys think that the typical accident, like what kind of parties will be involved in the lawsuit involving these uh, autonomous vehicles? Well, and I'm not to be cynical, but I think the answer is everyone that the plaintiff's lawyer could possibly identify. And But that is going to be a shift where you very rarely see a traditional OEM sued because of a malfunction. We saw that with airbag deployment, that sort of thing. But those are very unusual cases. So as these test cases play out, it's going to be an exciting time to be a product liability lawyer because there will be a lot of defense work as plaintiff's lawyers test what those faults are or could be that caused this accident. Yeah, I mean, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but I think, Todd, you gave the absolute best answer you could to that question uh, and, and the most truthful. But I think the really interesting observation, and it's not directly related to who the defendants are going to be, but just to frame this up and understand that there will be obligations for the manufacturers to preserve the evidence. So you've got these AVs with all these different sensors, including cameras. So the one thing we can say about these sort of accidents is they are not going to involve factual disputes in the way we've traditionally seen. We're gonna know that Zach was at fault when he T-boned me. And it's just gonna be clear. I think that's what's gonna be so interesting, Todd, right? Is before you'd have action reconstruction specialists, you'd have um, the jury's having to be convinced that when this person pulled out, they were going 35 and they were seen here. We're going to know the data, right? We're going to know exactly how fast you were going, when you turned on your turn signal, when you were merging, all of that. And it's going to be really interesting. And I don't want to get us off topic because I think that's a whole other episode that hopefully we'll do in the future. But, I mean, the preservation of the data, the uh, like the custodial duties of that data, and just, you know, um, controlling that data's presentation to the jury is going to be so important as we move forward, Right. Right. No, and then the other one, which we haven't touched on, but if you look at the Cadillac Super Cruise, it's got a camera facing the driver, which think about that. Not only do you have privacy issues related to that, but it's going to know that you were not paying attention, Zach, when you T-boned me. And I'm not going to let that go. You were responsible for that accident. And the problem is, Todd, you know, with the, the camera on you, we already established in the last episode, you're a sticker over the camera guy, right? So you can't obviously do that, otherwise you're not going to be able to use Super Cruise. But, you know, are you going to be okay with, uh, you know, Cadillac owning data of your face monitoring? I mean, that's a whole host of issues, especially when you think about the way we unlock our cell phones now, right? If you're not, you probably shouldn't buy a Cadillac because that's going to be just a fact of life if you've got one. But another interesting part of the, the discovery issue is not just the fact that that information will exist, but depending on how fast you can get that from the manufacturer, it might exist at a much earlier stage. You were talking about accident reconstruction. Typically, that's something that you're going to have to pay for after you've uh, really dug into the case and deemed it something that's worth paying for. Now, if you can get access somewhat readily to 
uh, all those cameras and all the information there, we're talking about things that would be known pre-suit to adjust who the target in litigation would be. And one last thing, Zach, to your point about the duty to uh, maintain all this information, it's, it's not just going to be there from a spoliation standpoint. Uh, some of this is baked into existing laws. I, I want to say the California's regulations talks about in the event of an accident having to record so much and preserve so much of the available data pre-accident, pre post-accident, those sorts of things. So it's not just going to be a spoliation litigation uh, duty, but it may be a, an actual statutory duty that's imposed on these manufacturers. Right. And returning to a theme, I mean, remember we were talking about storytelling. And again, that's where I think we're going to see powerful visual images that will help shift the narrative on auto accidents. When you can see that the AV would have avoided that accident, and you could even, I mean, we'll see, they'll have to draft their contracts well, so they have a, an ability to demonstrate that. But I think that level of storytelling may be what shifts the public narrative. And I think we can, you know, we could definitely get more into the way this evidence will impact not just pre-suit, uh, litigation, but also obviously how these cases are litigated. So maybe we'll save that for another episode. But the one thing I'd kind of like to follow back on before we wrap up here is, you know, whenever these lawsuits happen, like you said, where, or Todd, where uh, plaintiff lawyers kind of going after everyone who is a, has skin in the game, how do you think these companies will navigate that where, you know, um, let's just pick a manufacturer, let's say Ford is used to always getting their LIDAR from company X. Well, here company X was at fault. But Ford needs to preserve that relationship, and obviously they're not going to take on their you know, liability for them. But how do you think the companies navigate the fact where they're all kind of thrown into this situation where their self-preservation tells them to point the finger elsewhere? But at the same time, you know, you still have to preserve that uh, relationship for moving forward. How do you think companies will navigate that? Yeah. Well, and I contractually is the answer from a transactional lawyer. There will be very well-drafted contracts that will set forth who's going to be responsible. But I think, you know, as we preview future episodes, that is going to be one of the interesting questions is how does this risk get shifted? Is it with the insurance companies? Do we see a lot more commercial product liability policies that are resp responding almost as a first order here? I think that's right. And Certainly, there'll be a vacuum, not overnight, but, but as you see autonomous vehicles become more prevalent, there'll be a vacuum created by the state farm, all state, nationwide insurance that's typically gone to uh, those auto policies, and I'm sure that they wouldn't mind replacing that large segment of their business with commercial product liability policies. Um, but Todd is correct contractually, and I think it will also go to factors beyond the contract. If if you're a run-of-the-mill LIDAR maker, who if that becomes complicated and sophisticated as that piece of equipment is, if it becomes somewhat fungible, then maybe that is something where people would be more likely to switch to somebody else. But if you're on the market with the cheapest and best LIDAR out there, then you're probably willing to do a lot more to preserve that relationship than you otherwise would. I think that's right. And uh, I think that's a good stopping point. So thanks so much, guys, for taking the time to jump on. And uh, until next time, uh, see you soon. Thanks, Zach. That was fun. Thanks. That ends today's episode. Please subscribe, review, and rate us on iTunes. Also, feel free to write us at driverless at tuckerellis.com with any feedback or input on episodes you'd like in the future. We really appreciate the feedback we've gotten so far. 
and want to continue to make this something that is interesting and worthwhile to everyone out there that is as interested in this field as we are. And as always, thanks for listening and talk to you soon.